being human and being tempted and wanting to be in every way a normal human being and uh, to be married and all those things, but it occurred to me later I should have said something about children. You know, there in Matthew 18, he talked about the little children and said, bring them to me. And uh, he really loved children. He wanted them close. He wanted to hold them. He wanted to, to talk with them a little bit. So I'm sure, having been the one who helped design human beings and design the way wherewith children come, and then to see little children while he was human, realizing he had been through all of that, and that little child was there as a result of his planning and what he had done to set the whole operation up. And he knew that. So children held a special place in his heart. And I think that was uh, was emphasized by the very fact that he was dealing with a lot of hard-hearted people like the Pharisees. And they were vain and stubborn and selfish uh, in every way, and idolatrous. So he contrasted what he was seeing on earth among adults with the little children. And he says, bring them to me, for these are what the kingdom of heaven is all about. They were too young to be mean and nasty and full of guile, uh, ego, uh, they were still young and tender and sweet. And he says, this is the way we all need to be, to be young and tender and sweet. Uh, we should never get over that. But as we get a little bit older, all the things about selfish human nature begin to show in our lives. We don't have to get very old before that human nature comes out and before Satan begins to influence with his way of thinking. And it's totally contrary to God. So, uh, I'm sure, as he saw little children about, as he went about his work, about growing up, and then about his ministry later, he thought about that a lot. And he would have very much desired to have children. But as I said... He couldn't have had children. There's no way that that was part of the plan because of the very fact that people would think that they were special because they were kin to him and somebody else wasn't. And that would have created all kinds of problems. And some people did that anyway, even though he had no children and no one to follow him. They still found a way to try to say that they were kin to Jesus, went right back to Him. And therefore, they're so special today uh, to God. So, there's an awful lot about Him as a human being that uh, could be explored and realize that what He went through. He said, you have not yet shed blood striving against sin. His desire to do certain things at times was almost overwhelming. 
And he prayed to the Father a lot. And when he made that comment, you have not sweated unto blood, maybe he had resisted so hard and prayed so hard that maybe his cells even opened up a little bit and and blood appeared. Plasma and blood. I don't know. But striving unto blood could have meant something like that. It could have meant striving to the point of death because uh, you lose your blood, you lose your life. I don't know exactly what that means. We can only speculate. But it does indicate a great deal of resistance that we didn't do. And witness even his disciples who he was going through, facing death, knew he was going to die the next day. Uh, He was very, very aware of all the prophecies, Psalms through the prophets, and Moses, referring to what he would have to go through. And none of us liked the idea of death. And he was still only 33 and a half years old and quite healthy. He wasn't 107 and about to die anyhow and kind of coming to grips with it over time. He was very young and virile and full of energy as a young man. And yet, he knew he was about to go through the greatest torture that anybody had ever suffered, and then die. He asked the disciples to pray with him. That's another account that we didn't read here in John. We might even go there, I'm not sure yet. And they uh, they went to sleep. <laughs> They did not feel the energy. They did not feel nor understand what was about to happen. They didn't grasp it. And we'll see later on here that those scriptures in the Old Testament that you and I take for granted today when we read about what would happen to him and then how it happened and was described in the four Gospels, it's very clear that those prophecies meant him. But the disciples did not understand it. They didn't grasp it. So he was going through, in that sense, hell on earth, facing what was about to occur, and that he should have a certain attitude through it. And he was so very close to his father, and yet he knew that his father was going to forsake him because he had to forsake him in order for him to die. And that's what he said just before he died. Why have you forsaken me? Well, sin cuts us off from God. And he was carrying the sins of you and me and every other human being who ever sins. And that separated him from the Father because Christ was the filthiest human being who had ever been on the face of the earth when he died. Did you ever think about that? As he hung there on that stake, he was the filthiest man who had ever lived. Not because of anything he had done, but he carried the sins of the whole world. Billions and billions of people's sins 
were on his back. You can't get any filthier than that. It wasn't his own filth. It was ours. It wasn't his own guilt. It was ours. But he knew that he had to maintain the exact right attitude. He couldn't get in a wrong attitude because he did carry all our sins and he had to die for them so that they could all be forgiven. So that was an awful lot of weight and pressure on him. And he was feeling that there in the garden when he went to pray. The weight of it all. And here were his most trusted friends, and he says, pray with me. He prayed and came back, and they were asleep. You couldn't even watch with me for one hour? And then they went to sleep again. Well, he agonized. He knew he could not defend himself. He knew he would be carrying everybody's sins. So anything they accused him of, the guilt was on him, right? Murder? Anything. Because people have murdered and sinned in so doing. And that was on him. Everything. I wonder sometimes with our lackadaisical, sleepy time, wakey-uppy time, or halfway prayers that we often pray, how he must feel when he had sweated so hard and maybe resisted unto blood that night. He resisted and resisted until his blood was spilled. And that may be what he meant when he said that. How hard do we resist sin? This is that one week during the year when his sin is pictured by unleavened bread or pictured by leavened bread so we don't eat it. It's a symbolic thing. We are still required to do it because Paul said in the New Testament that we should purge out the leaven. So we should get rid of it in the New Testament as well because it reminds us of our sin. It reminds us that we should put out our sin. It's just a physical thing, but it reminds us that we're to put out our sin. And here we are. Are we really today, yesterday, tomorrow, for seven days working at getting rid of whatever attitudes, whatever Thoughts, whatever we can think of as we examine ourselves, continuing to. You don't just examine yourself until Passover is done. Because if you're to put sin out, maybe you recognize your sin coming up to Passover and you hadn't gotten rid of it all. So then you spend the next seven days working at getting rid of it. Working at putting it aside. But maybe you didn't see it all either, and you should still be thinking, what is there still between me and God?
you know, you sit there and you think, well, what are my sins? Hmm. How long does your list get? How many of your sins can you list on a piece of paper? How well have you thought about it and could write out a list? Would it be four? Would it be ten? Would it be a hundred? How many do you see and recognize in yourself? I have somebody that, not here, once in a while says, have you repented of all my sins yet? I says, well, I'm still working on the first page. Or if you'll give me the list, I'll, I'll keep working on it. Or sort of smart things like that. I, I, I Smart aleck things, they say. But I, he's kidding me and I'm kidding him back, obviously. But, uh, I said, well, I've been working on it for a month, but I, man, I just can't catch up. Things like that, I'll say. But truly and sincerely, what is there still between us and God? Some kind of attitudes, some kind of thought process, some kind of thing that we even physically might still do. What is there? Because we want to be as close to God as we can. Now I submit that we probably still have an awful lot of lack in understanding, maybe even in terms of what true spiritual sin even is. And we do not sometimes recognize our own wrong attitudes. Ungratefulness, unthankfulness, envy, jealousy, you name it, they're in the works of the flesh. There's so hatred, uh, which is murder. All those things can be a part of our thinking process, and all kinds of thoughts can go through our minds. And maybe some of them we've kind of gotten used to. Well, that's just the way I am. I'm not going to do anything about that. I've always been that way. I, I can't do anything about it. I've had people tell me that. I've been that way all my life. So they adopt the uh, Protestant song, or the attitude of the Protestant song, just as I am, Lord, just as I am, take me as I am, or however the song goes. Maybe he doesn't want you as you am. Maybe he wants you different. That's why he said, overcome, and I will grant with you to sit at my throne. He expects us to be doing something about it. So, I'm bringing this up to contrast how very deeply zealous and frustrated and worried and fearful he became as he understood his death was near and he had to carry your sins and mine's there and mine there and go through with it all successfully. And it was an incredible burden. Do we get that excited? He was excited about our sins because he had to carry them. And that was an awful lot of weight. How excited do we get about them is the point. Do we hate sin to the point we are willing to pray fervently 
that we overcome whatever it is that we are facing that we realize is maybe wrong in our attitude. How hard do we work at it? How much effort are we willing to put into it? You know, overcoming is not an easy thing. It's a very, very difficult thing. When something becomes a habit, a pattern of speech, a pattern of thought, uh, physical things you do, habits are easy to come by. And then if you try to stop one that you've had for a week or a few months or 40 years, you find it's very, very hard to change that because your emotions, your mind, your body all work that way. They've been doing this now, and they're used to it. Reminds me suddenly, I thought of this this thing from uh, a minister up in Alaska. When he said, we're going to keep the Sabbath from six to six. And he had started it before he made the announcement and preached the sermon telling all the churches that had met together for that weekend that that's the way we're, we're going to do it from sundown to sundown anymore. We're going to do it from six to six. And he says, this may seem a little strange to you, but he says, you get used to it. It's okay. Now, yeah, it was wrong. But he said, it'll become a habit. It's just, just make the change and it'll be okay. You'll get used to it. And then it won't seem so bad. And they did. They did it. They started keeping it that way. Except for, I only know of three families that continue to keep it from sundown to sundown. And they got used to it and got comfortable with it. It was wrong. It was sin. They weren't keeping the Sabbath anymore. They were sort of keeping part of it. But if you don't keep the whole thing, you haven't kept it. So they were cutting several hours off of what was actual Sabbath time. Now, they were still keeping a 24-hour period of time, but it was an offset from the true Sabbath. If the Sabbath began at sunup at 6, and uh, I mean, let's not put, let's not use 6. Let's say sunup was 7, and it went down at 8. Well, no. Well, let's say 7 to 7. That's 24 hours. Sunup to sundown, 7 to 7. And you decide, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to keep it from 6 to 6. Well, you start it an hour early and you stop it an hour early. So you've lost two hours of what is the actual Sabbath. Because you kept a different period of time. Yeah, you can get used to sin. You know, there are people when they start first repenting, first understanding truth, and they got all kinds of habits that seem natural to them. Oh, you're not supposed to eat unclean foods. Oh, well, I've done that all my life. Just the opposite of Peter. Peter said, I've never done that. And we come to the truth and we say, I've always done that. I'm used to that. I like it. But if that's what the Scripture says, okay, I'll do it. But were they ever truly converted in attitude about that? Because when they told us, again, I was in Alaska when this stuff started coming down from the Tkachas, 
hey, you don't have to worry about cleaning unclean meats anymore. Christ cleansed all meats. Had a sermon about it. My daughter went to work at McDonald's at sunset. And here come all these church people through ordering their bacon burgers. Maybe they'd never been truly converted to understand because they went back to it just like that and it was comfortable for them. No problems. They see Leslie at the window. They didn't say, uh, oh, I'm, I'll be doing this or not, but I want to. I mean, they didn't apologize or anything. They just did it. So we can get used to things. And then we could do without them a while. And if we haven't truly changed our whole thought pattern and been truly converted or changed, it's so easy to go back to something that's wrong. Have you ever noticed that if you never had a problem with something, you don't have a problem going back to it? But if you did have a problem with something back here, and you're in a position where you're tempted with the same thing again, how much easier it is to go back to where you were a while back. They call it with drunks falling off the wagon. If you had a problem with drinking, maybe you got over it three years down the line, somebody offers you one and you have a moment of weakness and you fall off the wagon and start all over again. Happens to people all the time. Because there is there's a rut worn there in your mind and emotions. And it's easy to fall back in the rut. Driving down the road. You're in the ruts. It's too deep. Your car's going to high center. You, you pull it over and you jump out of the ruts. You oversteer a little bit and fall right back in the ruts. Then you have struggled to get out of the rut. Well, our minds get rutted. And it's hard to get them smoothed out to the point that you don't fall back in the ruts. Old habits are easy to pick up again. So, he was going through that. And it was a very difficult time. So, he calls upon us during this period of time to put sin out of our lives, to think about it, to recognize it, and to make an effort to bring that under control, to get out of that rut, if you will, that your mind tends to go to. And it is not an easy process. It's very difficult to do. So, I know maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, and you've already all overcome your sins, and it's not a problem, but uh, I suspect some of us still have a few difficulties that we could be working on. We're not getting to... We're not living together in absolute perfect love without ripples here and there yet, are we? Uh, without attitudes, without this, without that. Uh, if we were in perfect love and perfect obedience, we would be getting along perfectly. There would be no hurt feelings, there would be no offense, because he says, do not offend 
a little one, or a big one for that matter. Don't offend anybody. So it's upon us not to offend anybody. And then he also says, do not be offended by anybody. We're not to take offense. So you've got to do both. You've got to both never offend anybody, and you've also got to never become offended. Maybe I touched on something here we could work on a little bit so that none of us take offense or get offended or give offense. Uh, then we're getting together in the kind of love that Christ intended us to have one to another. The kind of regard and caring for someone. Why do we allow somebody to offend us? Well, A, we got vanity, ego, and self in the way, and we don't like ourself to be diminished or put down in any way, so it's easy to get offended. It's human nature that allows you to be offended. It's your selfishness that allows you to be offended. And sometimes anger, frustration over what somebody else does, uh, can lead to that as well. And then things that we say or do can get on somebody else's human nature and they get offended at us. And sometimes it's almost innocent, isn't it? What you said you did not intend to offend by, and yet somebody maybe misunderstood what you were trying to say or what your feeling really was, and they get all offended having misunderstood your motive or your thought. So we have to be careful because it is we're all capable of misunderstanding what somebody else says or is thinking. Well, they must have meant, and you, you might talk it over with somebody once in a while, well, what did he mean by that? Well, I think he meant this. Well, I think he meant that. And they may not have any agreement on what somebody said and what, why they said it or what they intended it to mean. And if we miss, maybe they did have a bad attitude and they did intend, intend to hurt you or cut you. But then again, maybe they didn't and you just thought they did. Maybe they walked by and didn't speak to you and you're kind of offended that they weren't friendly. How do you know they weren't fighting an ulcer? And that look on their face wasn't about you at all. It was because of the pain in their stomach. You never know what's bothering somebody. Their dog might have just died. And they didn't smile and say, hello, how are you? Well, we misunderstand. And that's why it's so critical in some ways that... We be on guard against being offended by someone because we don't always know what they're thinking. And we attribute motives to them sometimes that they weren't thinking that at all. I've had people come and say, well, what did you mean by that? Nothing. What are you talking about? 
I didn't have an attitude toward you. You just thought I did. But those things happen between us and among us. So we need to be very, very careful that our human nature is not right there on the surface to easily be offended. That we are thinking spiritually and walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. And therefore, when little things of the flesh come up, we don't let it bother us because we're thinking on a higher level than that. We don't let it bother us. We don't attribute motive to them. That's part of the evil imagination thing. You not only imagine somebody else's sins, but you can also imagine their attitudes. You can imagine their feelings. You can misinterpret their words. So very easily, we do it all the time. But the key then is, all right, maybe I didn't understand. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they did have an ulcer, you know, whatever. I'm not going to let it offend me. If it really bothers you, you can go to them and say, did I upset you in some way? I, you know, or maybe your grandmother died and, and uh, you know, you weren't as friendly as usual. So I just want to be sure everything's okay between us. We can do stuff like that. Uh, but we don't. We swallow it and be mad and fester like a splinter in your foot so often so these may not be murder fornication and and uh, sabbath breaking but they're little things in our attitudes and our spiritual view in our reactions that are important these are the finer things that we need to be working on instead of going back to the basic principles of Christianity, which day is the Sabbath, why were you born, uh, things that are very, very basic, we should be at the point now where we are refining our attitudes and emotions and working on them on a daily basis. And human beings will give us plenty to work on. Uh, and we will give other human beings plenty to work on because of the very nature of feelings and emotions and thoughts. So we got to love each other. And in so loving each other, that's how people will know we're the disciples of Christ. So we all have growth in some of these areas that we need to be considering. And these are the... There's no better time than to talk about and think about these things than right now, during the days of unleavened bread, when we're supposed to be getting sin out. Smaller sins, maybe. They're not large ones in one sense, and yet any sin is large, because any sin, on some level, uh, disturbs the peace, your own or somebody else's. Well, we were going to get to John here. I guess we better do it. Uh, I left off in chapter 20 and verse 23. And we discussed whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted to them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. So he gave the ministry that leeway to determine if somebody's attitude was right 
And whatever it is that their sin was, uh, he could say, don't worry about it. God has forgiven that. Your attitude's right. Or they could say, I think you're still a little bit bitter. I think you're still a little bit jealous. I think you're still a little bit of this or that. And uh, you shouldn't be here in church until you get that under control, whatever it might be. Uh, and that's the way Paul did with the man with the incest and several other examples in there. So God gives that, as I said last night, it's not a matter of j eternal judgment. God makes that. But here in our physical lives, He's given the ministry, just like He did the priests and the judges as we read in Deuteronomy, the capacity and the authority to either retain or to remit based on someone's attitude and their actions. If the fruits are not fruits of repentance, then they're not dismissed. If they are the fruits of repentance, then the minister is hopefully discerning of that and willing to dismiss it and tell them, don't worry about it, let's move on. So, there's also a place where it says, if you went to the priest and you inquired for an answer, and you got an answer from him, you were bound to that. You had to see it through and do what he told you, what advice he gave you. And then when the church began falling apart, or it's actually even long before it fell apart, I'm thinking back, because I remember this from being in Miami. You'd have people come through from Atlanta or from Mobile or somewhere else, and they'd move down there, and they might have a problem or a difficulty. It might be a divorce and remarriage issue or something like that that was, was heavy on their mind. And maybe a decision had been rendered up in Memphis and through Pasadena on their situation, whatever it might have been. And so they would come to a new area and to a new minister and they'd ask him. And if they didn't like what he said, they'd move on to another area and ask the minister there. So they shopped for their answer. We saw quite a bit of that, actually. We said, well, I don't like this preacher. He doesn't agree with me. On to the next. Until he found one that would agree with him. If that ever happened, in some cases it did. I saw where... Uh, one would tell him this, and another one would tell him something else. Well, that had to impair his growth. That had to impair his level of righteousness. Because he was not seeking repentance and overcoming and growth. He was seeking to continue whatever it was that he was doing. That he had been told was not right. So, you know, if you were shopping in those days... When the Takachas started taking over, oh man, I was with Herbert Armstrong and he said this, this, and this. I got me a new pastor now. I can eat whatever I want and I can keep the Sabbath whatever I want and I can keep Christmas and Easter and Yahoo, I found a good preacher now. And a lot of people did that. Are you shopping for righteousness and holiness or are you shopping for what you want to do? 
people have stooped to such things. And that's why a scripture like verse 23 is in here. Because that prevents it. And God says, no, I'm going to back up the decision. And if you think you can go somewhere else and shop for an answer, no. No. Verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now just up here, just before this, when he had come, he volunteered to show those scars to those that he came to. And here, though, uh, he's saying, I'm not going to believe it until that happens. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them this time. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be to you. What that means, the door is being shut as he came through the wall or through the door without opening it. He was spirit. Uh, he had gone to the Father and come back, and spirit is not limited by walls. Satan and the demons aren't either, for that matter. Uh, people have seen demons come through the wall in houses. I don't even like to talk about stuff like that because I don't like the feeling that it gives, and I don't like to give... Satan credence or credit for anything, but as a spirit being, he can go anywhere just as Christ did. Thankfully, we have Christ who defeated Satan to call on when Satan does try to affect us directly. Now, we're affected by Satan through temptations and through thoughts that come into our minds. He's the prince of the power of the air. And he can broadcast sinful thoughts into our minds. But then you have the times when Satan will directly attack, or a demon will directly attack, and try to take over your mind. And you realize it's an attack directly from a demon or from Satan. So he said, we're to say, the eternal rebuke you, Satan. So it is not you that's doing the rebuking, it is the Eternal One. And he defeated Satan in that battle after his 40 days of fasting. And qualified to depose Satan. So Satan fears Christ. The demons fear him. And Satan and his demons are far more powerful than us. That's why Paul said, put on the whole armor of God. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We're against principalities and powers of the air. So when you feel that Satan might be making an attack on you, the thing to say very firmly is the eternal rebuke you. And they will go away. Now, some are more difficult than others. Christ said that. He says, you know, you might cast this one out or that one out, but some only come out with fasting and prayer. Uh, once, once they've actually taken over somebody's mind and possessed them, 
There's a difference between influence and possession. So if you feel that influence, and I, I have at different times in my life, and you probably have too, where you felt Satan was coming after you, and you rebuke him, and he goes away. But I've experienced sometimes where it took me having to say it three or four times <coughs> and pray about it <coughs> and struggle before they go. But they fear that name and they have to go. And you can have faith in the name of Jesus Christ or the Eternal One or Emmanuel and rebuke them in that name and they have no choice but to go. Now, they can leave a very dirty, evil feeling once they've been in the room with you. And I have had to, after they've gone, I've had to pray about it for a while and talk to God in order to get rid of that foul, nasty feeling that they leave behind because they are just simply nasty and filthy. And you have to get past that. Anyway, he came through the door, and it was shut, and stood in the middle of them, and said, Peace be to you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach here your finger, and behold my hands, and reach here your hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Now, they hadn't told him that the disciples had not told Christ that Thomas doubted. Okay? He had appeared to them and showed his scars, but Thomas wasn't there. Now the first thing he says when he appears is don't doubt, Thomas. Now the reason I bring up that point is that Christ hears and knows Everything we think and say. He didn't have to have anybody tell him that Thomas had a problem with this. He already knew it. He heard it when Thomas mentioned it to the others. So you can't say anything to anybody here that Christ doesn't know about. Now that ought to shake us up. should scare us a little. When we're talking to somebody, all we're thinking of is the emotion of the moment and who it is that we're talking to. And we kind of forget that from above, everything is being heard. Every attitude is being monitored. Everything that goes through your head, God knows. You don't have to speak it. He reads your thoughts. He could read Thomas's thoughts. There are several things back here that we've already covered in John where, I, where he would say, well, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this. And they would be, oh, wow, how did you know that? He could read thoughts. Your thoughts are not your thoughts alone. He ponders your heart. He ponders your attitudes. 
You know, you can hide attitudes sometimes from people, but you can't hide them from God. And that's what the Psalms are all about, where David would talk to God about his attitudes and about his feelings. And he wanted them out. He wanted them discussed. He wanted them communicated to God. And aren't our prayers a lot about that? Don't we oftentimes talk to God about our feelings, our needs, our emotions, our thoughts, our attitudes? Yeah, we discuss those with Him. And He's He's right up to speed. He knows exactly what you're talking about. You, you, you can't pull a fast one on Him. He, he knows the whole thing. Just as He did here. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God... And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Now, it wasn't a a heavy incrimination against Thomas here, but you and I have never seen him. We're in this category that he was talking about there. We've never seen him, but we believe, don't we? Yeah, we believe. So we're the ones he's talking about here. Who believe without seeing him. I've seen him. You know where I've seen him? In a meadowlark's call. I've seen him in a flower developing and growing. I've seen him in the blue sky with the beautiful clouds. I've seen him in a little child's attitude. I've seen him so many places because it's all about what he's done. Now, I can't say I've seen him with my eyes. Can't say it that way. But I've seen what he has done. And I am impressed and I believe that everything around here that he has created had to have been done by God. Couldn't have been done any other way. But, no, Thomas had seen him with his own eyes and felt him with his hands, and he believed when that happened. But you and I, through his creation, as Romans 1 tells us, have seen him that way, and we believe without having actually laid eyes on him as an individual. Verse 30, and many other signs, uh, I'm having trouble seeing this, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Uh, a few details are written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are different than these. Uh, other things were added, but John is saying there were a lot of things that I'm not written here that he's done. So, the other books fill in a few of those things, not all of them, I'm sure, by any means. Because he spent some time with them there as God, as he did with Paul, teaching them, guiding them, leading them, uh, giving them a very, very firm foundation in what was ahead of them to do. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, oh, I read that, which are not in this book, 
But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Life eternal comes only through his name. And we are to read what happened and believe him and believe in him and to have faith that what he went through here that we're discussing, his punishment and death, is able to save us and give us eternal life. We have to believe that. We have to have confidence and faith in that. How are you going to grow and overcome if you figure, well, God ain't going to be able to save me? We can be negative about it. We can be doubtful about it. But that's not the attitude he wants us to have. He wants us to believe that he can work salvation in us and is doing it and will do it and shall accomplish it. And to humbly and thankfully accept his work in us and then move forward in confidence. If you think you can do something, you are right. If you think you can't do something, you are right. (laughs) If you don't think you can do it, you're not going to do it. When somebody says, you ask them to do something, says, well, I'll try to do that. My confidence level in getting them getting it done drops to about 30-40%. Because they use the word try. If they tell me, I will do that, I have a great deal of confidence that they're going to get it done because they said it emphatically and didn't give themselves any wiggle room. If they say, all right, I'll try to do that, I think, oh yeah, brother, here we go. They're not going to try very hard. They didn't commit. And most generally, it doesn't happen. Now, sometimes it does. That's why I say I I dropped a 30-40%. I'm a little less than half sure it'll get done when they say I'll try. But when they say, I'm going to do that, I shall accomplish that, then I'm pretty certain it's going to happen. If they tell me, there's no way I can do that, then I really don't expect it to get done. (laughs) You know? They're right. It's a self-prophecy. I can't do that. That's right. You won't. We're to believe. And in faith and trust move forward meekly and humbly being so thankful that he is and will and shall work salvation in us so that we can come to say as Paul did I am going to be in the kingdom of God he was able later in his life to feel that confident I finished the race I've won. I've got it done. He knew by that time that God was going to give him the gift of eternal life because he'd done what Christ asked him to do and he'd had the right attitude about it and he'd gotten rid of some of those things where the things I don't want to do I do and the things I do want to do I don't. He had grown and maybe he wasn't as much that way. We'll all be that way to some degree as long as we're human. But he had come to the 
end of his life and he said, I've finished the course. I've run the race. And I know that my inheritance is there. Now, that feeling of confidence in him is something that needs to grow in us. But we impede that when we sin. When we have wrong attitudes, we impede the confidence. Because if you know you're doing something wrong, you know it's harder for him to work salvation in you. Because your attitude isn't there. So you need an attitude adjustment hour. And sometimes he gives you one. Because he intends for you to be there. And if your attitude needs adjusted and you don't adjust it, he'll adjust it. I've approached him at times and said, Father, I, I know I deserve a spanking. I know I deserve correction. But I'm admitting it, and I know I need to do this. Please be merciful and I'm going to overcome this, or I'm going to fix this, or I'm going to do this. Be merciful on me and don't hit me too hard. And you know, it helps mitigate it. If he sees your attitude as such that you're working to get something done, he's a lot easier on you than when you say, you put too much on me. I can't climb this mountain, Lord. It's too big a mountain. Then he'll say, well, buddy, you might as well get your shoes on because you're going to climb this mountain. <laughs> Whether it's easy or not. So, attitude is everything, really, when you get right down to it. Well, let's see. I managed to get through seven verses tonight. I guess we'll pick up there tomorrow night because it's already time to quit.